Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party, this show featuring Professor Rosie Campbell, Professor of Politics at Birkbeck University, the second guest in as many weeks from Birkbeck and two very different discussions. Uh, This one features and focuses on uh, Rosie's latest paper, Why Friends and Neighbours Explaining the Electoral Appeal of Local Roots, but goes off into so many different and very satisfying tangents. It is, well, it gets revealed halfway through, but... This is the first episode that we've ever had a drink through because it was um I've gone all you grant. Um we were um we fancied a ball of rosy and it's a hot day. So this is recorded on a uh, on a Wednesday. It's very hot. On the way to where we record this, the pubs were spilling out onto the streets. Rosie said, you know, oh, God, everyone's drinking out there. And I said, well, I'll get a bottle of rosé. So this this was recorded over a bottle of rosé, which I've got to say, I might start bringing in more often. I might start a bar here and let guests pick a drink. Sarah Bishop, producing the show, is nodding profusely in a way that she's never done to any of the political points made in this studio, only to the alcohol, which, let's be honest, this is what really brings people together. Um... Rosie is absolutely superb. There is there simply not enough time to get out of her, all the things that I wanted to cover. So we'll definitely get her back in. But we talk about so many different things, not just localism, but nationalism and feminism and where all these things intersect and, and areas where they don't. The study that she's done, the way in which studies are designed, the way in which people respond to these studies, it is absolutely... Just completely fascinating. I already know I'm going to listen to this one back as soon as possible. It was just great. And we talk about a number of different things that... um, I won't ruin any surprises, but it is... It's just a thrilling ride for anyone interested in politics because it is intellectual, it's academic, it's also personal, it's funny. She's brilliant and... um, Just... I'm so glad I've started doing this weekly. So, I will shut up. Oh, and... What I was going to say, of course, although you don't know this yet, the political party, this very show has been nominated for a British Podcast Award, which is I'm genuinely delighted. Um, we've been nominated for Best Comedy. You can also vote for us in the listener, the listeners, the rosé, the listeners' choice award. Although doing this on two glasses of rosé may not be that professional, but if you go to BritishPodcastsAward.com, one of the big awards of the night is the listeners' choice award. If you go to BritishPodcastsAwards.com, you can go on there and vote for the political party. It would mean a great deal if you did. I'd be very grateful. And if you could ask friends and family to do that, that'd be great. And please, subscribe. Share on social media. And I know I'm a pain for asking, but leave an iTunes review, because it really does help other people find it. And I'm getting all these wonderful people in, and I would love as many people as possible to get the benefit of their expertise and experience. I'm going to shut up now and leave you in the wonderful, capable hands of Rosie Campbell. 
Rosie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, you're the third academic that we've had on the show. God, do you, have you run out of decent people to interview? Not at all, no, no, no. <laughs> no, oh, I hope that's not how you see it. <laughs> and the second, the second in as many weeks from Birkbeck University. Oh, well, my goodness. Well, I, I won't say that about Birkbeck. You've obviously gone to the finest institution to find your academics. Finest and nearest. Uh, ah. It does help that people can walk in from there. Um, now, you've got a, a broad expertise uh, across political science, but your new paper is out. Uh, why friends and neighbours explaining the electoral appeal of local routes? Now, as someone who used to work in politics and knows that you know, being able to say that someone is local and the local voice, local choice, and all the cliches that people put on by-election leaflets, I was—I have to admit—unaware of the sheer amount of research that's gone into this historically, globally. That actually, where someone is from relative to where they stand for election really matters. Now, there's something kind of warm and folksy about that. There's also something really quite depressing about it. Um, So, I mean, in broad terms, how much more likely are you to get elected in a seat if you're from there? Oh, that's a tricky question because a lot of our research is experimental. So we we ask people to compare hypothetical candidates. But there is research by Jocelyn Evans, which shows that the literally the postcode of where the candidate lives compared to where the voter lives makes a difference. It's a small difference. Which party the candidate's representing is always going to come first. It does make a difference. Um, I agree with you. I'm not sure. Is it depressing or is it a good thing? It's 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 a tricky one. In a way, when you think about the politics in which we currently live where we've come through a period where people were deeply cynical about candidates being parachuted into, you know, if I think of my Labour experience, London-centric political class, parachuting candidates, particularly into the North and Scotland, and the reaction that communities have had there to that sort of behaviour, I can understand the desire for local, but then equally, I instinctively react against a parochialism in politics in a sense that we can only understand an area if you're from there. Um... I mean, what's your view on it as, as a positive or a negative force? I agree with you that I can see why there's a demand for local MPs because, you know, in our kind of political system, we we can get to a situation where parties think they've got safe seats, although we found out in 2015 they're not always as safe as you might think. You yeah. know, the Labour Party lost so many seats in Scotland. But that means that sometimes parties can, can become quite complacent and, and, as you say, parachute candidates in, if that's the right word and not pay that much attention to the local opinion. On the other hand, we don't want to get move into pork barrel politics, no. where it's all about you scratch my back, you give me a local hospital. You know, There are bigger issues at play that we as a nation need to think about together. And just thinking of yourself as 650 discrete units doesn't really help us with that. So there's this tension between the local and the national and in our political system, you just wrote, vote for one person and they've got to serve both those roles. So it, it creates a real tension. Do you get any sense <clears throat> that this is becoming more of an issue or less of an issue? More of an issue in that, you know, there are 20, 30 years ago, there were politicians who talked about visiting their constituency once or twice a year. You couldn't get away with that now, even in no. a really safe seat. So it has become more of an issue. But on the other hand... Political parties are reacting to that and choosing more local candidates. So it's kind of self-fulfilling as well. And I suppose how much time a, a, a member of parliament spends in a constituency is slightly different to whether they're from there or not. That, you know, point. There are people that won't be from an area but will spend a lot of time in the constituency, understand the role of a constituency MP and have a, have a good unit there. I mean, Dennis Skinner, until I think very recently, didn't even have a constituency 
or any sort of constituency operation, and yet would be seen as a very strong advocate of the people of Bolsover. So it can. Th- there are various different strands to what a good local MP is, I suppose. It's really difficult to get a handle in, isn't it? I mean, is it whether you're born or brought up in an area, if you moved there 20 years ago and you're really invested in it, if you move there actually for the election but you've got really involved... I think people, when they're looking for a local MP, I think they're looking for reinsurance that you really care about the area. And there are multiple ways that you can do that. But your cliche of the, the parachutist, that's what people really want to avoid. <laughs> I remember working, we talked about this with Owen Smith just a few weeks ago, but I worked on his by-election in Blind and Quent, and he was from five miles away. And the people there were going, I said, oh, he got a local candidate. He's not, he's not local. I can see Pontypridd from here. It's literally that hill. No, mate, he's not local. He's been parachuted in from Pontypridd. So, oh my God! You know, so in some areas, it's hyper local. Not that that necessarily had an outcome on that election, but um, there are various. The, the the paper is fascinating to read. Will it be available online? We'll be able to put a link to it. Uh, it? yes. I think they're going to do online first. But like lots of academic papers, some of it might be behind a paywall. But we will definitely do a blog. I have to say, before I take too much credit for this, that a couple of the co-authors are really amazing statisticians, Nick Vivian and Marcus Wagner, and without them, some of those fancy bits you were reading would not be there. Yeah, but it's your idea. (laughs) You you know, give a bit of credit where it's due, but this is all yours. Um, One of the things that really comes out of it is this idea about whether members of parliament are delegates or trustees. Yep. That's Redmond Burke. That's right, absolutely. So in terms of what is desirable... And what the public want, I suppose, is it fair to say that actually at different times they want different things and at certain times they would want a delegate and at certain times they want a trustee? I think it's really difficult. Most of the time, if you ask voters what they want, they really want a delegate. They want someone who's going to represent their view. But when we think about democracy and how democracy is supposed to work, sometimes what we want isn't actually what's in our best interest. What Mm. I might want as an individual may not actually be what's in the best interest of the whole country. And so if you go back to Burke, he was a terrible elitist, and I don't want to sign up to his manifesto, um, but he would say, oh, people don't really know what's good for them. Um, you need enlightened individuals like me to represent them, and I'll be a trustee. You know, they can vote for me and they can boot me out, but really I, I will make best decisions during the, the legislative term. And I think the difficulty is he's not right, but there's some truth in it. You know, politicians have the time and the resources to actually hear both sides of the argument if they're paying attention in the way that when we're getting on with our ordinary lives, we're not really thinking about the pros and cons of intervening in Syria. No, and that is the essence of representative democracy anyway. We, we live in a society where we delegate the power to the individual to, to, to make that decision on our behalf. And within a constituency, there are competing opinions of what public opinion is. So. Absolutely. You can't just read it off and think, right, you know. I mean, but then on the other hand, we've got, we, we never used to have a referendum because of this issue. Yeah. And now we've got into a norm where on constitutional matters, we will. So uh, we, we've gotten to a place where we're not quite, we're not pure representative democracy anymore. In some instances, we expect to have true direct democracy. In terms of what the academic community would think of that in, in political science, are referendums desirable? Well, I often get my students to think about this because um, obviously I teach in a London institution. It's, um, I would say, very pro-Remain as a bias. And so students are often quite anti-referenda. And I talk about um, the recent referenda in Ireland to allow gay marriage and suddenly people feel that maybe they're quite a good thing. So I think the issue is, you know, if you disagree with the result of one particular referendum, that, that affects your view. 
Um, I think on some matters of conscience, they, they, they make sense. But anything that's very complicated, the whole point of representative democracy is you, you choose someone to be a representative to actually go through the materials and to make an informed decision, which we just haven't got time to do. Um, and of course, they are widely used by dictators. Referendums are absolutely, yes. yes. They're, they're far more easy to manipulate than a general election, I think. But um, one of the most frustrating things, I think, is that there's a lack of, and maybe this is my own frustrations coming out here, a lack of political reality from elements of the public that politicians are going to take decisions you disagree with, that you have to take a broader view about on the whole. You know, you're never going to get everything you want out of a local MP or a government or a referendum or any democratic exercise, the outcome will always be a compromise of sorts. And shouldn't we just get used to that? And I actually thought for a while, maybe I'm wrong, that the UK was getting to a place where it felt like, maybe in the Blair years, that actually we'd moved slightly beyond ideology and that people had a more balanced view of what they wanted from politics. And now we've gone the other way. Ideology's always there. I think what you're describing is... The main parties getting very close together, so it looked as if they were arguing about managerial issues. Yeah. But what that did was hid a lot of people's ideology, and you know now we see a backlash against that on the right and the left, where people felt they weren't represented. I actually think, sort of, actually in the post-war period, people were more aligned to parties. You know, I'm a Labour person, I'm a Conservative person, and so they were more willing to accept compromise if their party was in power. Um, I think the difference now is that we don't feel that kind of loyalty to a party anymore. Um, and so we want to be able to have more of a shopping basket approach to politics. I want a, I want a little bit of gay rights, but I really also want to leave the EU. And, you know, suddenly it's hard to find a party that actually has all the products you want in the same place. So then what's the, I suppose, the response of parties then is to find out, I suppose we go down a Cambridge Analytica route now, in a way where they try and find out what issues matter to you most by your taste in music or whatever else you're looking at and try and get your attention on the one or two things that you value above the others. Yes, I'm sure that works in the short term. There's also a role of political leadership that our ideas aren't just sitting there preformed. There are lots of things I haven't yes. really thought about. And until someone engages me in a debate about them, I haven't. I don't really know what I think. So to think you can just go out there and read off public opinion without actually coming forward with an argument saying, look, we believe in this and this is the direction we want to take the country in. So I think perhaps contrary slightly to what you're saying about the New Labour period, which was an adjustment, it was an adjustment to try and react to the median voter, to middle-income voters, but it was very much about this kind of market research strategy. Let's read off voters what voters want. Actually, sometimes you've got to kind of say, this is what we believe in. Yeah. And uh, some people felt that they didn't know what the Labour Party believed in anymore. Well... They can't say that now. They cannot. Uh, well, we they are, can, because it's not one... Well, it's not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They can perhaps say it less. Um, one, of the th- one of the phrases in, the, in this paper really stood out to me was, people may infer that local MPs care more about the constituency. In a way, then, does that mean that people think those MPs would be more effective, or is that not what they're thinking about? Is it purely just about an identity... Um, reward on some level. That's what we're trying to unpick because we assumed that what was going to matter was what the MP did. We called that (laughs) behavioural localism. Yes. So you elect a local MP because you think they're going to represent the local area. But what we did in the experiment was to try and control for that, saying that the MP, whether they lived in the area or from the area or not, 
was going to work hard for the constituency. And what we found is there's still quite a high desire for a local MP, even when you control for that, which I think means there's also an identity expert, an identity component that people just want someone from the area. And we don't know quite why. It's a kind of someone like me, someone I can relate to. We don't understand yet fully why that is. But that's always been the case. So this isn't about globalisation or even immigration. This is about something perhaps hardwired into, is it, and not just the British people. Hardwired's a strong term. I certainly think we're very groupish, aren't we, human beings? Um, and if your sense of identity is partly located in your local area, yes, then you would you would identify with... I mean, I would suspect that's less the case in a place where there's lots of mobility and people move around and communities are more fractured. I don't want to go too far into the formula that you, you oh God, come don't, up with. Oh, God, don't, because I will fail the test. But, but the, the kind of... Uh, uh, the test that you conducted, which is bordering on a Darren Brown uh, exercise, <laughs> where you write two biographies of two fictional candidates and then see how people feel about them. So the first one is um, a fictional chap called Nick Cowley. That's what it says about him. Nick Cowley is 46 years old. He grew up and lives in your local area. Before becoming involved in politics, he was an accountant. He's widely regarded as clever, hard-working and straight-talking. In terms of policies, he's interested in health and pensions. He spends on average four days of a working week working on local constituency issues and the remaining one day reviewing and working on national policies in Parliament. When considering policy matters, he mainly thinks about his constituents' views. He studied biology at university. In his free time, he likes watching films and reading fiction. He's married with two children. Now, as well as the clear message that he listens to people locally and the majority of his time is spent uh, working on local matters, there are other things in there, aren't there? He's he studied bi- he studied biology at university when Very he stood up for me. Yeah, was that was that for a particular well, reason? No, because it's because of the experimental design. It's called a conjoint analysis, and it came out of market research where you might have I don't know if you'd like to mention brands, you know, Coke and Pepsi yeah. or something, and you then say, oh, this one's fizzier and that one is uh, sweeter, and you would have you 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 manipulate those different characteristics randomly, um, okay. all at the same time for multiple choices that people have to make. And then you're able to look at how important is fizziness relative to sweetness, et cetera, et cetera. So in this case, instead of being fizzy or sweet, we've got um, how active are you locally, um, some of those other things, what, how much time do you spend on the constituency. So there are certain things we manipulated and then we're able to control. So the biology doesn't matter because you've always got these two that you're choosing between and one of them always studies biology. <laughs> so, you know, one of them is always Coke. Yeah. And as it doesn't change, it just doesn't, doesn't matter for the, the experiment. But does biology come out of a, a random you know, program that you've got where certain things are put the in there? The random program is called Phil Cowley. He comes up with these little little vignettes that he thinks are believable. Yeah. And the experimental design means because what you're comparing, you're not comparing someone choosing um, Nick Cowley between, what was it, Nick Cowley and Phil Campbell? Phil Campbell's 53 years old. So uh, there are multiple choices people make between these two individuals, but what you compare is one choice of Nick versus Phil and another choice of Nick versus okay. Phil. So anything that same stays the same, like studying biology, isn't part of the experiment. But these are both educated people, I guess is the point yeah. I'm making. You're not saying that Philip is unemployed or well, non-graduate. We have looked in different experiment. We have looked at the effect of not having an education. Well, that's a bit no strong. Having different levels of education. Yes. So leaving school at 16, leaving school at 18, leaving school with a degree and leaving a school with a PhD. For me... It's very troubling that the least popular kind of candidates had PhDs. Um, probably <laughs> I'm makes reassuring sense. for the rest of us, probably. <laughs> makes sense from the voters' point of view, I'm sure. Why is that? You don't want verbose 
I, I, I will say no more. Anyway, uh, but it's, what do people? What, what's the root of that then? What do people imagine? Because with it, I wouldn't have a problem with a PhD, for instance. But it doesn't—it's not that people are making explicit choice. Remember, in these trade-offs, you're just choosing between two, and then we look at the other two. Yeah. So in a way, it's implicit. We're finding that you prefer, on average, candidates without PhDs. Maybe they seem remote. They seem not connected to the real world. Perhaps. Um, whereas someone who the, the most popular candidates were those with the lower levels of education. So, and that was true amongst respondents with education. So it's not just oh, I'm not educated, and I would like someone who has not got a degree to represent me. It's more actually maybe these people are more relatable. Is it perhaps about framing? If you just said someone was a doctor, well, doctors have... are very very popular. So maybe that's the way to do it. Well, so we did that as well. We looked at different career choices: being a doctor, um, being a banker. <laughs> Being um, a politico, doctor's very, very, very popular. Yeah. So, what are the most popular doctor? Well, we didn't. We haven't tr- tested every teachers. Every... I imagine you, you could rank that. You could rank those three quite easily. Yeah, bank <laughs> okay. So let's do Philip Campbell. So that's interesting. So, so um, Nick Cowley is forty-six. He grew up and lived in the area. He's is you know a national politician, but he spends most of his time locally. So this is Philip's biography. Philip Campbell is 53 years old. He originally lived in another part of the country and moved to your local area five years ago. Before becoming involved in politics, he was a teacher. He's widely regarded as diligent and honest. In terms of policies, he's interested in education and transport. He spends on average three days of a working week working on local constituency issues and the remaining two days reviewing and working on national policies in Parliament. When considering policy matters, he mainly thinks about his own personal views. He studied physics at university. In his free time, he likes running and going to the theatre. He's married with three children. So that was Philip Campbell. So the, the variable there is actually quite a, quite a gentle one. It's just a day's difference, obviously, well, proportionally. But, but those are just two versions, and there are lots of things in there that change, whether they live in the constituency, how long it's been, how much time they devote to the constituency work. I've forgotten the third thing you said. So... Uh, randomly, the person responding to the survey, those things will all change. So your 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 Philip Campbell will have different attributes for different people who are responding to the survey. Gotcha. So the, people were then asked, they were given these two biographies yeah. and asked on a scale of ranging from 0 to 10, where 0 means very unhappy and 10 means very happy, how happy or unhappy would you be to have each person as your Member of Parliament? So wh- what were the results? Um, the results were that we, when we, we ran the experiments, even after we said... So if you look at those in the um, candid, the MPs who had very high levels of representing... The, they, they put the constituency first when they're making the mind up and they spent a lot of time in the constituency. Even then, the candidate who was local from the constituency was still more popular. Um, so it cut the difference down, but there was this sort of residual effect that people still want someone from their local area, even if the person who's not from their local area is really actively engaged on the behalf of their constituency. And is there any sense geographically where those desires are stronger? We hadn't found that. And other research I've done with um, with Phil Cowley, we've tried to look at, do people want more local candidates? You'd think... You'd think, actually, in really strong local communities where there's less social mobility, that would be more important. We haven't found that so far. It seems to be important everywhere, which is what you were saying. I mean, this is one of these things where you're studying politics and you end up telling people who've done politics on the ground stuff that they really know already. Well, it's more fascinating to think about, you know, the things that you take for granted, knowing that there's this weight of research behind them is firstly reassuring. It's also just... Absolutely fascinating. What what is really oddly comforting is the fact that 
there's a lot of old research about this that that shows that this has existed. And I think there's always a comfort in history that actually this isn't just about Brexit or the Iraq War or, you know, all the modern MPs' expenses things. This actually is... There was a there was a there was a longer theme here. That's true, although it has changed a bit in that because people were such party animals in the post war period, this stuff mattered less because you were going to be a Labour person or a Conservative person, that's how you're gonna vote. Whereas now we're more fluid in who we're gonna vote for, there's much more room for these things to make a difference. We might always have cared about them, but you were not gonna go out and vote for the other party just because they put up a local candidate. You might be more inclined to now. In terms of the breakdown of uh, class-based voting patterns, um, Labour, working class and conservative uh, middle and the rest, and obviously there was always there were always exceptions to that, to where we are now, um, what are the main causes of that? Is it social mobility? Is it an end of the age of deference? Or, or are there other things that have led people? Is it a desire for more transactional things? Has economic growth actually you know, broad economic growth, perhaps forgetting the last 10 years, contributed to a more affluent society that feels freer to, to choose as they wish. I haven't done research on this, but I know... Oh, I, I shouldn't have asked, sorry, I should no, no, never no, ask blind. I've read, I've read about it a lot, and I, well, I, I think there are a couple of different things going on. We all know that the structure of society's changed massively and that fewer people identify as working class, there are fewer manufacturing blue-collar jobs than there used to be, and a lot of the social institutions that used to draw people into, say, supporting the Labour Party are not as important as they were, yeah. churches, trade unions and so on. So a lot of the mechanisms for becoming a lifelong supporter of the Labour Party changed, and as a result, or, you know, as an, uh, Tony Blair was quite right to look at these statistics and think we need to, to work harder to recruit more centre votes, and they took a lot of um, Conservative Party voters away, and so there for the Conservative Party, at least under David Cameron, shifted towards the centre. Um, so I think it's a mixture of structural changes in society and then the parties responding to that. And then if you're a working-class voter and you look at what the Labour Party did in the 1990s, gradually your family's lifelong commitment to being loyal to the Labour Party might seem less sensible. You know, mm. why not consider giving your vote elsewhere because the policies might not seem directed at you? There's then, I mean, all sorts of other phenomena, particularly the last election where, you know, the prevailing wind had been that the, you know, certainly post-Brown, or maybe even the Brownite period, that as long as it was, um, that the two-party politics was breaking down and then we saw the return of it last year with the two parties dominating the landscape, both polling at around 40%, which is remarkable, really, and still neck and neck on around 40 looking at the polling in the last couple of weeks. What were, what were the, the, the results at that last election that people really talk about are Knightsbridge going Labour. Equally as fascinating, Mansfield going Conservative. Now, I'm from Nottingham. The idea that Mansfield, the, the, you know, the centre of the coal mining industry and of so many of the disputes around coal mining, would vote Conservative. Even... It's still now unthinkable, but it, it, do those two results, are they aberrations or do they show that actually the Tories are reaching into the working class more than perhaps they have post Thatcher and and the Tory and Labour sorry are, are are more pitched at a middle class ground. I think I think I think it's so complicated but and I think Brexit played a massive yeah. role. Um but I think if you're talking about the Mansfield example, I think the traditional issues that divided the party, which were kind of left right economic issues, who's going to spend more on the NHS? Who's going to you know, look out to the welfare state. 
to some extent, Brexit shone a light on the fact that there are other set of values that we tend to call liberal authoritarian that are important. Mm. And the Conservatives' law and order, you know, they've always, that's been considered to be their strength. And so as we've had a sort of shift where left-right seems to be less important in the aftermath of Brexit, suddenly the parties are competing on slightly different terrain. Um, I don't know, I think it's it's the Conservative Party really shifted to the right in some ways and to the left in other ways. And, 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 and that meant that they were able to scoop up voters from UKIP without losing too many of their um, more centrist voters. But the Labour Party did a really incredible balancing act <laughs> at the last election where they, the story, whether you were Remain or Brexit, was, was so, um, so uncertain yeah. that they managed to take, take Canterbury, you know, always been a conservative seat because it's a massive uh, university town Um, Kensington Kensington, that was it, not Knightsbridge, it was Kensington Kensington, where, you know, suddenly you get a Labour Party MP but that was because of such a vociferous um, reaction against Brexit amongst those Remain areas Um, so it's a really unusual situation where Europe has suddenly suddenly became for some constituencies the most important question In terms of Brexit and Corbyn's own position on it now, until... I mean, and even now he can't bring himself to really be pro-European. He's voted against it every chance he ever had. Which way he voted in the last referendum is anyone's guess, frankly. Um, how long can he keep going on effectively being a Eurosceptic, a sort of, or at least a reluctant pro-European person, and keep those banks of millions of people on side? That's a really interesting question, and I think... It's much easier to manage that difficult lack of position in opposition. Yeah. And, and so he might be able to go on doing it for quite a long time, I suspect, yeah. um, because he can be softly remain when he needs to be um, without actually ever saying that he is not going to support Brexit. I think if he were to win an election, then this would become a massive issue because he'd have to start making decisions. I don't want to get you into predictions, but do you think he oh, will Oh, no, win? don't do that to but, me. But, but do you think he will win the next election? Oh, that's just a terrible thing. I mean, I'm really... I'm <laughs> what to really, contemplate? Well, I meant to, to ask. I mean, I'm really pleased I that I haven't didn't get caught up in predicting the last two elections because <laughs> I certainly would have been wrong. And I, I'd like to think that analysing pro- politics, we're doing something more useful than predicting the future. <laughs> but know, this actually, actually, the truth is, if, you, if you're so hopelessly wrong, it does make you feel question your analysis the rest of the time. Yeah. So that's a really massive caveat. What do I think? he's got a really good chance of winning i think that um there is such such that such a demand to kick the system mm. and because he is associated with being anti-system i think he's got a really good chance of winning don't you oh god yeah i think he's at the moment he's the favorite to win it but uh, but equally that said in my gut given the relatively recent history of british politics and the parties that do win elections, and as good a campaign as he had last time and he lost, the balancing act that that took. <sighs> but will he, does he, by the exposure, by getting so close, does that not just lend him a credibility that means he might have more chance next Absolutely, time? Absolutely, I think it does, yeah. I think it does him more good than harm. But mm. instinctively, I still think there is a core of millions of people, and they, you know, they might be on the losing side, that value competence in a Prime Minister now... Does Theresa May deliver that? Arguably not. 
I still think there is a desire for a professionalism of some sort that he he fails that test. And maybe maybe that's not as important to other people as it is to, to others. I think recent history in other countries suggests that we may give that more credit than it's worth. Yeah. Um, that competence argument was very fashionable for a while. I mean, that's kind of still... Does it explain the last election that that they're both broadly incompetent but Theresa May just a little bit less so? I mean, well, given where the predictions were early on in the last election, it's absolutely phenomenal that the Labour Party got the result it did. And also Jeremy Corbyn's media exposure, and I'm not one of these people who thinks there's some kind of conspiracy against Jeremy Corbyn. I really don't think so. The leader of the opposition always gets less exposure. But um, in an environment where he has more... Uh, I, I know I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced. I think he could really win. And uh... Well, there you go. <laughs> Place your bets now if you're listening to the expert. Um... No, don't say that. <laughs> um, one of the things that you've done in previous elections is predict other things, whether it's uh, numbers of female MPs or... That's much easier members. to do because we know who the candidates are and we know, know what sex they are and what their individual likelihood of winging is. So in terms of the next election, do you have a view of any other predictions that don't revolve around whether Corbyn becomes Prime Minister or not. The next election... Well, first of all, could you please tell me when it will be? As that will help enormously. Well, I thought after the last one it was going to follow fairly quickly. But it doesn't look like it's any time soon. But who knows, events. Well, I... Let's say they do the full term, 2022. I think it's very hard to look back far into the future because we just don't know what Brexit's going to look like and what issues are going to be most important. So one of the reasons we've seen more women elected into politics is that the Labour Party, first of all, and then followed by other parties, took getting more women into politics really seriously and focused on it. Um, and so it's very hard to think, what would the environment be like? At this last election, the party, the main parties shortcut all their selection mechanisms. They didn't have the traditional local votes in the way they yes. normally have. Um what will happen next time? It, it really depends. Are we sort of back to more of a business as usual? Has Brexit gone fine? Is the country, you know, are the parties operating under their usual procedures? Or are we having a kind of chaotic, unexpected election? And that will make a huge difference to who the candidates are and how they're selected. So at the moment we just... All predictions are on hold. My predictions are permanently on hold. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that purely as a result of the last election? Or was I, that always... Was I've there always, always been that... a bit cautious that we um, can predict elections with any confidence. I mean, voters can make up their mind closer to an election. Big yeah. things can happen, events can happen. I mean, look at tragic events that happened in the run-up to the last election in terms of terrorist acts. Um, you know, predicting something of this scale, you've got to be very confident in yourself that you can do that. You do. And in terms of the caution on prediction, how careful do you have to be about your own politics when you're in academia? I really, really care about that. I think it's really important to make... A separation like a civil servant would between your own political beliefs and your objective analysis and sometimes I find out things that I don't really want to find out so um, my PhD was on um, gender and voting behavior or women and voting and I was at the time you know really felt that women were underrepresented and I wanted women voters to care about that there wasn't much difference between men and women and I had to look at the figures and and, and report them and not be politically wedded to that and that's really important to me that in debate you've, I'm sure you remember Michael Gove's comments and he, I mean, he would suggest they've been taken slightly out of context um, about experts Yeah, I think I really believe in liberal democracy I believe in the institutions of liberal democracy and obviously journalism is key to that but academia plays a role too 
and providing honest evidence where you really have tried to be objective is crucial to our democracy. And so it's really, really important to me to try. I hope everyone would agree. <laughs> I fear that some people won't, but I think the majority will agree. Um, so that's why that's one um, that's one prediction I will make. There's there's that element of your your own politics. There's also the element of if you're teaching people, you will have your own political opinions, your own party affiliations. You have to be careful to keep your your part any party affiliation or bias secret. Uh, it depends on what you're discussing. Sometimes saying how you voted can clear the air, yeah. and then you can have an honest. It's a bit like. You know, do you, do you, when you pick up a newspaper, you know if you're reading The Guardian what you're getting, or if you pick up The Spectator, you know what you're getting. Yeah. Sometimes it's easier to evaluate the quality of an argument if you know the bias. So sometimes I do reveal things if I feel that it helps the students evaluate my position. Um, yeah, it's a balancing act. So when you say clear the air, that suggests that things get quite tense. Oh, yeah, that's one of the best things about teaching politics is, is the debate. I mean, that's what makes it exciting. And I think... You were talking about um, the 90s, but when you meet people today who are first getting engaged in politics, they're so passionate, they care so much, they're so interested. It's fantastic. I mean, is there not, and this is purely playing devil's advocate, because I would always be in favour of people becoming politicised and, and the not, but Majid Nawaz uses a great phrase about reinforcing ignorance rather than actually learning. And I'm not saying that applies to academia, but a lot of people start with emotion first, and don't have the scruples that you have about finding facts that don't suit your beliefs and changing your position accordingly. Are we not... This makes you sound so old, and I'm only 35, but I have a concern at the moment that people are opinion-led and facts don't matter, partly as a result of what Michael Gove said, but partly as a result of the, the febrile tone of, of British politics. That actually, people are very passionate, but they're not necessarily that informed. That is really, in my view what trying to educate yourself is about. It's trying to force yourself to listen and really listen to alternative views and not to dismiss them and yeah. belittle people and patronise them, but to hear what they're saying. And uh, that's what a, a good education of any kind is about looking at competing arguments. And we naturally, as human beings, want to reinforce our own beliefs. We find it very troubling when the beliefs that we've been socialised into are challenged. But that is where real intellectual pleasure is, actually. Yes. And uh, so I, I really think it's, I don't know if we're any worse, actually, than when, you know, it, when we were very partisan and you're a conservative person, you're a Labour person, that's it. Were we any better? The thing is now that we've we've taken that security blanket away and we're trying to make up our own minds and we're under a moral obligation to try and do it well. And uh, at the moment, probably it's very easy just to follow your Facebook tweet. And I, I see on my own Facebook feed some of the things I get sent. I think, my goodness, what do you think I think? So what sort of stuff? <laughs> what, like... <laughs> my Facebook feed assumes I'm very, 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 very left-wing, which I'm not. And uh, I, I will get stuff coming through and I think, well, if I, if this was were to be my opinion, this would be constantly reinforcing yeah. you know, more and more more and more arguments from the same side without actually sending me the other side and say, well, this is what somebody perfectly reasonable who's got a different view thinks, um, which I find really troubling. Uh, is that as a result? Because that, there's some algorithm there about mm. your behaviour on Facebook that's delivering those things to you. Is I'm that a because... university academic. <laughs> they yeah. think I'm left-wing. <laughs> <laughs> is it that? Or is it that you have perhaps deliberately followed hard-left things out of a curiosity and that's been misunderstood Possibly. As... 
But I Allegiance. Think probably if you ever put anything on Facebook about refugees, they decide you're on the hard left. So what would throw you hard left stuff? Because I got a Facebook about five years ago. I was so pleased I did, given the recent revelation. <laughs> and anyway, I was just making me horrendously unproductive. Um, but I, the, see, the problem I have with all this stuff is that part of the reason why I stopped reading The Guardian as regularly, I just found it really boring to just read something that I agreed with and started reading The Telegraph instead and started reading The Spectator because I find it far more provocative to read something written by someone that I can... Not I completely disagree with, but I'm more inclined to disagree with because it makes me think more about my own ideas. I think that's really healthy. I try and read a range of things. I encourage my students, don't just have your favoured source. I, I try... I, I read Prospect, The Guardian, The Spectator. Prospect's brilliant. Yeah, The Economist. Um, Financial Times. I try and I can't read the Telegraph because my parents get in. It. It's just one of those things that you know you can't you can't read the paper your parents read. Um, oh, that's interesting because my mum read the Guardian, so maybe maybe <laughs> maybe it has actually that's just an right. act of rebellion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think I think that's incredibly healthy. You should be able to. Deb- most other human beings, in my experience, want to be reasonable. We have different preferences. Yeah. We're not, but we shouldn't we shouldn't demonise the other the other side of the argument. No, I completely agree. Um, let's return to this um, study because the second part of the study. I'll read it out. So we asked respondents to choose between a pair of hypothetical MPs. Each MP was characterised by six attributes, each of which varied randomly across two to four possible levels. MPs dividend whether they had local roots and also in the depth of any local roots. We included four attributes to capture behavioural localism. First, we provided information on how MPs allocated time to constituency work and national policy work, but with greater variations in focus than in study one. Second, we provided information on role orientation, in which we specified whether each MP paid more attention to his or her own personal views, brackets trustee, to those of the constituents, delegate, or those of the party when thinking about national policy. Third, moving beyond the first study to capture the policy preferences potentially signalled by local routes, we captured ideological congruence by providing information on the party of the MP and whether the MP was a centrist or more extreme member of their party. To capture policy emphasis, we described the main political interest of the MP as either educational health policy or economic policy and taxation. In the UK, the former are more local than the latter, as they're related to debates concerning local schools and hospitals. Finally, we also varied the gender of the MP in order to make the profiles more realistic. People were then asked, and I'm sure people listening will be able to say all that in, based on this information, which one of these two MPs would you prefer to have as your MP? A response was required with no don't know option, which is so nice to hear. So what were the, re- what were the results of study two? Study two actually confirms... Study one, which is always no. nice. Well, <laughs> so we, for um, you it's nice because it's less work. Well, no, no. I mean, you don't want... You know, in, in social science, we don't get that many shots at testing things, mm. so you don't want to get mixed results. Um, so we continue to get this, this, this fact that knowing what your MP does reduces your demand to have a local MP, but you still just want one. Still, just rather someone from your local area. So, really, there is no way of scrubbing that off. No, that's it's it's a it, it, people just want a local MP with a local connection. Doesn't it's not it's not about what they do when they get there on its own. Although that does matter. And is there is there a, is there a number you can put on it? Are, are people X percent more likely to be elected in? You know, it... I want to be really cautious because that. I mean, I'm sure people listening are yeah. thinking, that's not real, is it? and it's an experiment and we know that it's trying to see what would people choose all other things being equal whereas in the real world obviously there are lots of other things going on that 
ch- cloud or change your judgment. So we can't put a percentage on it. And that's, I suppose that's the next step. It's very hard. How do you, um, Phil Quantum Cowley it. and I have tried to look at research about this point, but how do you decide whether an MP is local or not? Most MPs, as you I'm sure know, will claim some local connection. Of you know, I, my granny, my hamster was born in the area. Um, you know, it's very difficult to quantify. That's the nice thing about the experiment that you can you can actually say, well, in, a, in this sort of ideal type world, what would you choose? And is there any way of combating it? Combating. If you're standing against the person who's local. Try and pretend, to, as I said, you know... Just out-local them as the only... <laughs> God, that's sad, isn't it? Well, of course, it's not, it's not everything. It's really not everything. No. Your, your, your party, your policy positions, they, they matter enormously. But it's, as you know, the parties know, if you can have a local candidate, that's going to make a difference. Oh, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just that, it, sadly, in any hustings on any leaflet, particularly in front of the public, makes such a difference to say, so and so is not from around here, they don't get it. And that plays to people, even in the most enlightened parts of the country, it works. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Books. Um, you haven't just worked on this. There's so many other areas I wanted to ask you about. Um, one of the one of the things I've watched you one of your um, presentations on YouTube was oh about. Oh God! What? What did you watch? I watched loads. Oh no! I've read a lot of your work. I watched a lot of it. <laughs> oh, um, was about the the fallacy of women voting less than men. Oh, um, that makes me so cross. You're going to get me on to one of my really hot topics if you start there. Yes, but I. I I mean, I agree with what you're saying, so I don't think we're going to argue about it, but it'd okay. be interesting to to know where that fallacy came from. So in the 2015... So women and men have been voting in roughly equal numbers for some time, for I think at least since the 70s. I, don't, I haven't got the figures in front of me, but for a long time. But just because of the nature, random nature, there's always a bit of random noise in any survey. So you can have a non-statistically significant difference where you maybe get 1% more women voting one time and 1% more men voting next time. And that's just fluctuation, it means nothing. And in the 2015 election, um, with all good reasons, Harriet Harman asked the House of Commons Library to calculate the proportion of women and men who voted in 2010. And they used this British election study data and they multiplied this percentage point difference. But it wasn't a statistically significant percentage mm. point difference. It could have gone the other way. And in fact, it did go the other way at the next election. <laughs> um, so, you know, it meant um, it, it, it frustrates me. And I can understand that I can understand the rationale. It enabled them to a lot of media coverage. I don't know if you remember the Magenta Battle Bus. Of course. You call it magenta. Most people call it Harry pink. Harry Harman called it magenta. But you know, she's a savvy operator. She knew what she was doing. She knew yeah. that was a pink bus. I, I went back through notes from previous elections and realised they'd had a white bus in previous years and got no attention. Painted it pink. Loads of attention. She knows what she's doing. And, and I, I, can see, I can see the argument. And, you know, the statistics were sort of right, except for they were wrong. Um, <laughs> 
And so I, I, I did, it was such a complicated story to explain that it was hard to get it out there. The British Election Study published a blog explaining why this, there is no difference. Men and women vote in the same levels in this country. Um, and that's the kind of thing I really care about. I do believe in hard facts and the truth. And it makes me really cross <laughs> when, when they're subverted. So are there any other big untruths like that? That, that actually have turned out not to be. I realise I'm putting you on the spot there. It's fine. Oh, that really some that immediately come to mind. Um, I but that's quite a big one. It's And it's easily done. And I think the issue is if you're a politician, you're looking for a hook, you're looking for a strategy. Um, and, and I can understand that. You need a narrative to yeah. frame your story around. It's just that I think the role of academics and journalists is, is to look at those closely and see, do they make any sense? I suppose in a way... Would the youth quake be part of that, or the so-called youth quake? When you look at, when you crunch some of the numbers, actually, it perhaps wasn't as significant or wasn't as significant in the specific age mm. groups that we were talking about. I think the issue there is that the really good quality data, which is random face-to-face, -face, so, you know, a lot of the data you can get very quickly is just, you know, telephones or internet polling, and all of, the, all of statistical methodology is based on randomness, that you've got equal chance of being pulled into this sample. And that's not true for those methods. But it's really expensive to do a big face-to-face -face random sample survey. So British election study is not out until six months or so after the election. And so all of that youthquake stuff was based on surveys that were not random samples. And when the British election study came out, there was a massive age gap in terms of voting are much bigger than the class gap in terms of which party you voted mm. for, but not so much in terms of whether you voted at all. Um, but that happens every election. This is another... You asked me about things that aren't true. For several elections, uh, there have been uh, newspaper articles immediately after elections saying more women voted Labour than men. This is the same thing, that when you then get the British election study, it turned out not to be true. Um, in the last election, it was the first one out of the last two or three where it was true. Um, so in a way... I mean, the course media outlets can't wait six months to produce a story yeah. on the election, but they have to do it on less reliable data. And the parties want their own narrative. One of yeah. Corbyn's big things was that young people were being enthused, that he was and it is reaching true. to young, young people, people in a way. And voted Labour, yeah. massively so. I mean, all of that stuff. So the youthquake is half wrong and half right. It's half wrong in that it wasn't about a massive surge in turnout amongst young people. But in terms of, in terms of youthquake, I think I still count as young. I mean, it's under 47, I'm not more likely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 35. You are young. Um, yeah. Under 47, I think, were more likely to vote Labour. That's a big... I'm way under 47, thank you. <laughs> I was um, going to say anything about that. Um, so it did, it, in terms of party vote, it made a massive difference, age. One thing I saw you say on, I think, Good Morning Britain, was that women are less interested in formal politics than men. So by formal politics, do we mean Parliament? Yeah. and councils rather than issues. So women, if you... This is some research I did a few years back now, so I, I assume it still applies, I'm not sure, but um, if you ask men and women, are you interested in politics, women are less likely to say yes, and then you ask them about the NHS or um, you ask them about specific policies, and on some issues, women are more interested. So I think it's about this, the partisan, the spectator sport of politics can be quite a turn-off. Yeah not just for women compared to men, maybe for some young people too, but actually they really care about issues. So is that about... Um, I mean, there are lots of pressures on politics to change, Parliament specifically, and not just in terms of its working practices, but its constitution and gender balance and other balances that we'd all want to see in there, you'd hope we'd all want to see in there. Is it 
the, the tone in which it's conducted, which is part of the problem. I think there's some really interesting research, particularly some natural experiments from India where just at random they put women leaders in some villages and not others. They were decided by lot. And where the women leaders, young women got more engaged in politics and more likely actually to take up other kinds of professions. And I think it's about a kind of role model role. I mean, I remember as a kid that the only superhero I was interested in was Wonder Woman. And thankfully Great now... Yeah, I think yeah, a lot yeah, of young yeah. boys felt the same way. <laughs> and older boys too. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, there, there were many women superheroes then. There are loads now, thank goodness. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it's quite simple. If you look at, uh, for example, I can never watch football, whereas my daughters are interested because they think, oh, people like me do this. So what football team do they support? Oh, Liverpool, like my husband. Oh, that's bad. They live, bad? And they live in London. I really couldn't care less. You'll have to talk to them but about isn't it, it. But isn't this interesting? In t- we've just been talking about <laughs> how important local routes are. In football, it's the total opposite. If you live in Epsom, I'm not sure there's a huge choice of local football teams to support, but I'm probably, you'll probably get loads Wimbledon's of criticism. Wimbledon's probably nearest, perhaps, or Chelsea, maybe. But you don't want to be sorting Chelsea. They're better off as Liverpool fans, actually. That quick bit of research um, vindicated their very wise choice. And they might win the Champions League this season, so that's very exciting for them. You've lost me now. Oh, you must have picked up on the fact they're doing. If you've got, if you're in a house full of football fans, that must have been on the radar a little bit. It's my excuse to go for a run. I've got no idea. I literally have. You can't play this, but my view about watching sport is like pornography. I'd just rather do it myself. <laughs> oh, let us play that bit. Oh, if you want. <laughs> I mean, I get the logic of it. I get the logic of it, and it's sound logic. But you can, you can kind of to, just to, not to dwell on that analogy too long. You can do both. Oh, I just think it's boring. I'd rather just get out there and do it myself. <laughs> oh, OK, let's move on. Um, there's a great quote from an interview with you, I think it's on the Birkbeck website, uh, about whether you would be a politician or not. And you said, I used to think I wanted to be a politician, but I didn't think I could do the compromise. Mm. Now, in an odd way, that seemed to go against everything we've talked about in the last 50 minutes or so, that actually you seem to be an advocate for reasonable... I admire it. I think politicians, God, we give them a hard time, but they're doing the most important job out there. They are deciding how our lives are organised and I'm full of admiration for it. And I I don't think I've... I, I would be too frustrated. And, you know, you do... And, God, you know... Absolutely held to such high account, and uh, you know, flip flopping if you change your mind. Um, and of course, all politicians have to find their red lines and the things they're going to compromise on, or polit- politics wouldn't progress. Mm. And uh, so, I can see why you think that there's a conflict, but actually, I'm full of admiration not for all politicians, no, of course, not. but for the not good these ones. Days. <laughs> the um, good ones, I really am. So, what politicized you? Oh, I, I'm. I suppose it's probably the same thing that made you interested in football. I used to sit and watch politics with my dad on the telly and uh, argue about it. And uh, I could see that actually the result mattered. It's not like football when you're just going to play the game and be next year or next week. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it really has serious consequences. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's interesting. So it was it was it was a shared experience with with a parent. Yeah. And did you rebel against his views or? Not. That is putting it mildly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I won't say too much, but yes, putting it mildly. So when you say you'd watch politics, would you be watching Question Time or...? Stefan, watch the election, watch Question Time. OK, so time. election nights, yeah, Prime yeah. Minister's questions or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah, all of that. What a great way to get into it. 
I mean, some people might think that's not the most interesting television, but it did it for me. I love it. I still, I still, I watch Prime Minister's <laughs> Questions every Wednesday. If I'm working from home and I've, I've no MPs that think I'm sad for saying this, I will have the Parliament channel on in the background. Oh, I love it, so Just on. Yeah. Just on in the background. I think you learn loads of stuff mm. from it, not just personnel and where people are coming from and personalities. It's a really good way to have a briefing about the issues of the day, particularly if it's a, an urgent statement by a minister. I mean, I if I'd have enough free time, we'll just go into Parliament and sit on the balcony and just sit there. I've sat there for three hours before. And... Well, we share that fascination. I love it. Yeah, me too. And I'd love... The thing is, as well, is I don't just love the information in the sense that you're getting, you know, really high-quality information from people who can really talk on the whole. I love the look of it. I love the green benches. I love how small it is when you're there. I love the history, and that's meant to put people from my background off. It's and I love it. It's interesting, isn't it? The debate. There are not many areas of life where you see people really... When it's good, it's oh. very, very good, isn't it? When really passionately debating something of consequence with, with information, with evidence. I mean, it's, I just love that. What I loved as well, I, I, I by pure chance ended up on the balcony for part of the refugee debate two or three, ooh, two years ago, whenever it was, you know, wasn't that long ago. And it, the quality of contributions on all sides was amazing. And just the contradictions where you had Conservative MPs speaking far more passionately and eloquently in favour of letting more people in than some Labour MPs. Like, it was all over the place and it was full and it was wonderful. And occasionally you get really emotional moments where it's someone's last day or things like that or suddenly people have passed away. And it's just, they're really. But what you just described then moments. is the delegate role in, yeah. its, in its finest form, isn't it? There are some things when you're talking about people talking about a refugee crisis and they're there and they're using their own conscience and they're using yeah. the history of trying to think about these issues and research them. It's then that you really see that there is a role for Parliament beyond just being the local MP. There's yeah. a national debate that needs to be had. And as you say, the quality of it's sometimes pretty high. I love it. So do you ever go in and just sit there? I suppose you don't have the time. Not at the moment, no, I have to say... Uh, I, I, I will when the kids are older and I've got more free time. I'll join you. We should do a day where will you bring Rose. I'll bring Rose. Yeah, <laughs> we should say. We, do we have a, um... Oh, that's kind of your name, isn't it? So it sounds like you're talking about yourself in the third person. We have had a glass of rose while recording this because on the way here, it's a very hot day in London today, and there's a lot of people drinking outside, and I think we both felt that we were missing out somehow. Um, so there's a bottle of rose on the go in here, so. That might explain certain parts of the show. <laughs> it might not. Um, there's so many other. Th okay, we've got a bit more time. Um, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to okay? keep you beyond. You made a great series on Radio Four last year called "Being a Rational." I might not voter. be doing that again after my confession about pornography. <laughs> Stop bringing it up. <laughs> Close the story down. <laughs> um, maybe you might get more. <laughs> You <laughs> might be making um, documentaries on some very different channels, <laughs> depending. Um, it's called Being a Rational Voter. And the, I mean, the first episode in particular I find really uh, gripping. And you talked about a lot of these themes already, about um, not just left and right, but authoritarian and libertarian and the different things. For a while, there was this view, and perhaps it's perhaps it's still prevalent, that the divide wasn't left and right, it was open and closed. Is there is there any credence to that, or was that just a, a fashionable view at the time? I think it's. I, I think open and close is similar to kind of cosmopolitan versus nativist, or even liberal authoritarian. They're different labels for a similar kind of phenomenon. 
Um, and I, I do think it's important. I think the, our politicians, our political class and lots of other institutions are mainly populated with people who I think Tony Blair described as open. Um, you might describe them as cosmopolitan or liberal. Yeah. Um, and we have perhaps lost enough insight about people who really care about local connection, local community, and we shouldn't belittle that kind of set of values. Um, and there needs to be space for people to express those preferences in politics. So, you know, I think it's still important, very important. In terms of identity politics, it's used simultaneously as, a, as, a, uh, as an insult and as a, com a compliment, depending on which party, what particular time you support, or indeed which candidate. Is identity politics, do you think, necessarily a bad thing? That is a really difficult question. I, I mean, some people would say, yes, it's a bad thing. It should be about issues and ideas. But I think if you look at institutions, if people's bodies are not there, their voices tend not to be there as well. Yeah. So I'm very struck by Harriet Harman and her generation when they talk about when they first entered the House of Commons, issues like domestic violence and childcare were private issues and they shouldn't be on the agenda. And by bringing women's bodies into Parliament, suddenly those issues became political issues. And so identity politics has its role um, you don't want to become essentialised so that if you're a woman politician or you're an ethnic minority politician, you can't speak about issue, other, any other issues. Um, but it's it's very important to have a diverse set of voices representing us, I think. What about national identity in that regard? Oh, dear. Well, this is something... Um, national identity is, is a political value, isn't it? That's very, very important to some people. I, I personally... I think we all came from Africa and it's a bit arbitrary <laughs> where we where we kind of decide that our nationality is. But this is where I disagree with my father. My father's a member of the campaign for English Parliament. Oh, and, uh, my God. Hang on, right? Where does he live? <laughs> he lives in Hampshire. Oh, right. And okay. he, has a, he has a thistle on one arm because he's half Scottish nice. and a rose tattoo on the other arm. Um, so, he, you know, I understand that people do care about nationalism just as I understand that people care about football. Just for me, it makes no sense at all. The campaign for the English Parliament, there was a guy... So I used to work for, he's now the Police and Crime Commissioner for Nottinghamshire, a guy called Paddy Tipping. He was the MP for Sherwood. And I learned a lot. And it, it, he taught me more than anyone else has ever taught me in part. Very lucky to have him as a first employer in politics. But there was a guy in his constituency in Sherwood who... You thought it was going to be my dad, didn't you? <laughs> well, I thought if you'd have said Nottinghamshire, I'd have gone, I've met, I've met him. Because he, he used to send us letters and he had his, the Campaign for an English Parliament letterhead and he had this huge banner outside his house. And Welcome every, to my life. Every day at lunchtime, he would drive down the main high street in Hucknall in Nottingham, I think it was called Watnall Road. He, but he would drive slow with four St George's crosses out of each window, one out of each window, playing the national anthem... So everyone else was getting infuriated by him because he was driving at five miles an hour in like, a very busy time. <laughs> and then he'd park outside the office honking his horn. So he was the only person I ever encountered for the campaign for an English parliament. I wouldn't say he's atypical. <laughs> so, I mean, when you talk to your dad about it, I get, I get in terms of the devolution settlement and I get the, I get the English identity argument because if it's not owned... One of my concerns is if, if, if patriotism or sense of national identity isn't owned by progressives then you, you do leave it open to Britain first, not just UKIP, but Britain first and awful people like the EDL. So there has to be... And I talk almost specifically from a Labour point of view that Labour has to have a view of what England is and what it means to people. You know, Even if I have a very confused relationship with my own national identity, as I think a lot of us on the centre-left and left would. Um, so I get the idea that the desire is there and, and it has to have an answer, but I suppose it's about... 
what you want the answer to be and where that where that desire comes from. You're asking me questions that I have been puzzling over for a very long time and spending an awful lot of family Christmases debating. I can't give you an answer. I think, you know, we've, I think from my father's point of view, he's passionate about the idea of injustice. We've got a Scottish Parliament, we've got a Welsh Parliament. I mean, the man's half Scottish. I mean, he's, he's, he's had a thistle tattooed onto his arm, for God's sake. I mean, that's commitment. Um, but, you know, why he cares so much? It's hard for me to understand, but I suppose it's about historical legacy and narrative, and he he, he believes in those things in probably the same way I believe in feminism. Yeah, but they're two very different. They're two very different types of political value, those aren't they? I suppose it doesn't have to be exclusive, does it? I think he would say that it's not about race, for example, yeah. um, and and it's about. I mean, he'd have to speak, and God, given the chance, he would love to speak for himself. Um, I suppose the, he, he's really cross about the injustice of the lack of representation for England. I do like to point out to him that England is massive <laughs> compared to Scotland and Wales, and the Parliament, if we had one, would kind of swamp the others. But it's the kind of injustice argument that really incites him. I, I get that. Uh, talking, my girlfriend's Scottish, and talking to her, and, you know, whenever you spend more time in an area, you do get more of a sense mm. of where these forces are coming from. That effectively, the British identity is the English identity, and then that is actually quite a um, that, that is quite that can be quite destructive for other parts of the union. That actually Britishness is Englishness, and people are the English don't realise that actually you've got everything you want you already. Want. Yeah, the capital is London. Everything <laughs> happens there. The media are there. You know, when you think, you know, right, you know, what am I moaning about? You know, I get the theoretical argument, but sometimes in practice, you can forget how much you actually do have in politics and the cost of. Well, I, I'd things. love you to introduce these arguments to my father. I think they would fall entirely on deaf ears. There's a fellow telegraph reader, perhaps I can <laughs> read some <laughs> with him in a way. Turn up on boxing there with a bottle of rose. Dad, I'm sorry. <laughs> Does he listen to podcasts like this? I don't know. I'll soon find out. We'll send him the link. Um, <laughs> there are a couple of other things, apart from your relationship with your father, that I'd like to explore. Um, one of them came out of that, of that, of that last uh, documentary, which is the psychology of motivated cognition. Oh, my goodness. It's a great phrase, which is when you showed pictures of Trump's inauguration to people who supported Trump... They'd I say, didn't show them, though. This was someone oh, else's no. research. Yeah. When one did. When, yeah. when, when, what, I have to be so careful in my language. When one was shown... Uh, when, one, when someone showed... The American guys, by some yes. showed pictures of Trump's inauguration crowds to people who supported Trump. They said, well, that looks like a big crowd to me. And when they showed it to people who didn't support Trump, they said, well, obviously there's no one there. It's not as big as Obama's. And that, but that also applied, not just to unemployment, but to Humphrey the Cat. Yeah, that was YouGov, wasn't it? Joe Twyman at That's YouGov. right. It was Joe Twyman at YouGov. Yeah. You're absolutely right. The public attitudes changed towards Humphrey the Cat based on whether they were told that he was Margaret Thatcher's cat or Tony Blair's cat. What are, then, as a result of that, how do we extrapolate that across politics? Is that just that people are tribal first, or is there is there is there something else that's less it's worrying? An important lesson, isn't there? And I think when we were talking back about the post-war period, one of the reasons parties were able to compromise in the way you described is that if you were a Labour Party supporter and someone said this is Labour Party's policy, you'd be much more likely to support it. Yeah. Um, we human beings are like that, and but I think when we're at our best, we try and challenge it. You know, we try and recognise, um, we try and recognise when Humphrey actually really is the same sweet, adorable little pussy cat, yeah. or know, whoever, a nasty little and, cat, regardless. Yeah, regardless, 
Um, but you know, you're absolutely right. Motivated cognition is a huge thing, and we're very unaware when we do it. And also, your point earlier about the way we consume news now is that we reinforce and feed motivated cognition all the time. Is there a positive, and this is purely devil's advocate, that actually the candidate does matter and the party does matter? So it is not enough, for instance, for Donald Trump to say, I will make America great again. If you don't trust that Donald Trump is capable, then it's not the same as if Obama said it. Yes, um, I, I'm trying. I'm struggling to find the positive in what you just said. Because um, actually, if a, if a candidate is inept or incompetent, well, no, then they should be lots judged. Lots of people as like such. Donald Trump, don't they? And they think what he does is good. So, I, I mean, I, I I think it's very hard on any kind of semi-objective scale to judge Donald Trump as competent, and yet lots of people think he is. Or is it? But do they genuinely think he's competent, or do they not value competence? I've, they value other things. For now, they value other things. I think if the incompetence were to manifest itself in very extreme ways, they might start caring about competence again. I mean, it's sort of that. <laughs> well, they're not, you know, at the moment, they're not in a massive recession or in the middle of a war, okay. you know. Well, well, at the time of going to... Yeah, go now, going, yeah. Yeah, yeah, by the but time this goes out tomorrow... people in don't feel as though they're yes. in the middle of a catastrophe. Um no, I, I'm trying. I'm struggling for the optimism you're okay. looking for. I'm, just, I'm naturally <laughs> optimistic. Me, help me. <laughs> find me some other source of optimism. Well, uh, I think there's half left in that bottle of the rosé, <laughs> which is, is the only source I've currently got to hand. Um, now, this is another great thing that came out of that documentary that we've always suspected, but I always thought was slightly folklore. Was it? The name is at the top of the ballot paper. It really helps. A tiny bit, yes. Statistically, it does make a difference. There's, you know, it's a thing in the states about some states have different rules. And, uh, you know, if you're in a state where they don't shuffle the names you, and your name's higher up in the alphabet, you've got an advantage. I think according to that documentary, it's 3% benefit yeah. to being at the top. Yeah, well, that, that, I'm afraid, you know, if you read the kind of behavioural economic stuff, that's, that's, that's the way we are. You know, if you go and you haven't quite made your mind up, you're going to be predisposed towards a name you've heard of, towards the, the first one on the list. Because naturally, as someone who still thinks... When I say thinks in a political way, I often think, probably I think in quite a... Machiavellian is not the right word. But you think, OK, well then, if your name doesn't start with an A, how do you get on the top of the list? And th I think the rules have changed now, where you can go on the ballot paper by whatever name you like. So a nickname. So a few years ago, a friend of mine, Phil Dilks, who for a long time was a councillor in um, Peterborough, was... <laughs> if you can prove to a returning AA officer... taxis? That you're not, no, but imagine that. Um, if you can prove to a returning officer that you are known as by a different name, you can get that name on the ballot paper. And he was known locally, or said he was known locally, as Fair Deal Phil, which is a great nickname. And he would never have got elected if he had the Labour Party name on his ballot paper, but he was known as Fair Deal Phil locally. And he got elected. And people had these posts of the thing, Fair Deal Phil. And it was like, and it's, it sounds good. It's actually quite pleasant to say. A fair deal, Phil. The team in the pub in the Koreas and whatnot. I'm not sure whether that got into the top of the ballot paper, but maybe you know. That, I'm not sure what point I'm making. Other than people recognised it, and liked it. Yeah, you can get you can get a bit of mischief, so you could change your name to just Triple A Taxes. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, be a great experiment. I mean, can I persuade you to do it? It'd be a lovely piece of research. Okay, so what do I need to do? I need Stand to start us. by changing your name. <laughs> put up the deposit. <laughs> Ideally, oh. we'd need more than one constituency to get enough sample size. Could, could uh, I? Would I have to stand as an independent? That'd help. We might have to all form the the AAA taxi party, I suppose. All right. 
I mean, you know what, these days, who knows? <laughs> I, I worked on Al Murray's campaign in South Thanet. 314 people voted for him, so... You've got, you've got history. I've <laughs> got so much history. Um, <laughs> another thing, I mean, there are so many things we're just not going to be able to cover. But one of the things that has faded as a priority is the economy, which for many years was, it's the economy stupid, was the, the rule under which we all, who worked in politics during a particular period, really adhered to. Why is the economy less important? Is it because, is that is that purely post-crash politics? Um, or is there something else? Well, the economy wasn't. If you looked at people were asked, routinely asked in surveys, what's the most important issue facing Britain today? And in the 90s, early 2000s, people said education and health. It's only after the crash that the economy soared to the top and immigration as well. So these sort of things always go in cycles. And I think, you know, although there are lots of people living in difficult economic circumstances, the unemployment rate's quite low, we've got some growth. Um, so the economy seems less important. The economy is always important in the background. Well, I suppose that's our case. I mean, that then is about whether people answer truly honestly to these surveys, whether the NHS is such a big deal to people that they would say it was their biggest issue without perhaps accepting a, a subconscious belief in themselves that the economy is bigger. Well, I think as long as the economy... Pe economy is people's most important issue when they feel that they might fa lose their job or they can't afford to feed their family... And I think while the economy's doing relatively well and the NHS, by most people's standards, is struggling, it's natural the NHS should seem a really important issue. I don't think that means that the economy's gone away. I think actually the economy can underlie a lot of those other issues. So people's attitudes to immigration are also related to how they feel about the economy. So the way you feel about the NHS, you know, it's to do with how much money's being spent in the public sector. So I don't think the economy goes away, but it's hard when you have biggest crash since 1930 it's gonna peak isn't it it's gonna peak Rosie there's so many other things I would like to talk to you about but we'll have to get you back another time if oh, that's I'd love okay. to. maybe we can... give me Rosie I'll give Rosie every time now <laughs> Professor Rosie Campbell and perhaps we could do and it was only just thinking while we we're talking there we could do a competition at some point in the future where we meet we take a group of listeners to a session in Parliament. That'd be good. And we all sit on the balcony, bottle of rosé. I don't know what the rules are, but I'm sure we could get it in. I don't think we could get it on the balcony. We could certainly have it before and afterwards. Yes. Do pre-drinks at the Red Lion and um, take a load of people there. Um, so maybe that's something to I'll do on. I look forward to that. I mean, as always, the time has flown by, but particularly today has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It was great. Cheers. There you go, Professor Rosie Campbell from the University of Birkbeck. Now, that's two guests from the University of Birkbeck. What a great... I mean, what a great... If you're listening to this as an A-level student or as someone who's considering going to university, we, we've really done quite a lot of free advertising for Birkbeck on the show. We have got other academics from other institutions lined up and there are many more that I will be approaching. Um, so, that was great. What I mean, there's so much more we wanted to talk to Rosie about. But wouldn't that be a good idea to get a few of us together and go to Parliament? Maybe I'll do a competition or something. Um, do keep emailing the show. I know I've been a bit slack with reading these out, but politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com and carry on the conversation. So if there's anything that Rosie said that, that appealed to you or that you disagreed or agreed with, carry it on at politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Do let us know where you listen as well. Dennis Mooney emailed. He says, Hi, Matt. I normally listen on the bus or the tube, but I listen to the Daniel Finkelstein episode on my way back to Beijing from a day out of the Great Wall of China. 
Dennis, you legend! Gordon Mackay says, I have to admit, when I saw you interviewing someone who had started a new party, I nearly gave it a miss. By the end, I was considering joining. Great pod, very boringly listening on the A329 from Reading to Bracknell. Oh, I mean, after the Great Wall of China, Gordon, I'm so sorry, but that is quite boring. Um, uh, we had an email from Chris Remo about Chris Coglin, the founder of Renew, we had on just a few weeks ago. He says, Matt, I love the podcast and its new weekly schedule. Thank you, Chris. Don't forget to vote for it at the thebritishpodcastawards.com. I listen every week and appreciate how generous you are with your guests. Thank you. Regardless of party, means a lot. In response to your most recent question, I would definitely vote for Chris Coglin and Renew, despite being traditionally most sympathetic to the Labour Party. Sadly, as an American citizen and resident listening from San Francisco, my position on the matter carries little weight morally or legally. Well, Chris, I'd say morally it carries some weight. Nonetheless, I wish him the best of luck and hope for a future check-in on your show. San Francisco, the Great Wall of China, and who can forget the A329 from Reading to Bracknell. This is a truly global show. Don't forget to vote for it at BritishPodcastAward.com. Um... Another email here. Hi, Matt. Uh, love the show. I've probably listened to them all. This is from Miles. It says, good idea to get them going weekly, and I feel they could definitely be more than an hour. I listen to them while I'm at work, and the hour flies by. Totally agree. One suggestion for a guest I'd like to see is you. Have you ever thought about someone else interviewing yourself? You often chip in with personal anecdotes that I find funny and interesting. It'd be great to hear a bit about more about your time when you work for the Labour Party, your own political journey, and where you see yourself now, etc. Keep up the good work. Miles, to be honest, I think I've probably used all the anecdotes that I've got, and I think it's better just them occasionally peppered in. I think it'd be... I think if I had myself as the subject of this, not only would it be horrendous egotism, it would be crushingly boring. Caroline Bristow got in touch on Twitter. She said, Matt Fortum to Professor Sarah Childs on the political party is one of the best episodes yet. I'm tempted to bookmark for sending to people who say, but let's be honest, we don't need feminism these days. Well, Sarah Childs was superb, and today's guest, Rosie Campbell as well, equally superb. It's just been... This is... I've, I've, I've So many clichés about always wanting to interview people and the hour flying by and the big cliché about the fact that this is just such a thrill for me personally to do, to talk to these... Inc- I mean, they just come in here. <laughs> they come in here. But they come onto the show and they give us the benefit of their lives and their expertise and their, you know... It's remarkable that so many wonderful people are prepared to give their time so that me and you and all the people who listen to this, we benefit from it. We're on like some free political education course here where we get to talk to former prime ministers, academics, journalists. I mean, I suppose that makes me the vice chancellor of this institution. And I'm also, Yes, and from now on, I'm going to charge you nine grand a term to listen to this. I'm not, but you can see how it starts. I'll see you next week. I'll be Matt Ford of this episode of The Political Party, which I hope you'll vote for at BritishPodcastAwards.com, was produced by Sarah Bishop. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. 
Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.